Blog Talk Radio. This is All About Wine on Blog Talk Radio, the talk show dedicated to the wine industry since 2009, featuring winemaker, cellar master, vineyardist, and tasting expert, Ron. Basically what we're trying to do on this program is just trying to educate people and trying to make wine less confusing and more friendly. From coast to coast and around the world. You know, we really have had some some neat people on the program. I, I just, I love that. Call our guest line at any time during the live show at area code 646-727-3235. And let's talk about wine. Again, the phone number to call is 646-727-3235. And now, All About Wine is on. Here's Ron. Wow, thank you, Busby. Good deal. Well, it's beautiful, beautiful weather here we're having. It's just yes, it is. Yeah. yeah, it's not too bad right now. No. Summer has not officially hit us, but uh, it's, okay. it's warm out there. Nope. Yeah, but you know, it's not summer warm, so that's what's so nice about it. It's, yeah, that's yeah. true. It's the humidity is a little bit lower today, so yeah, it's yeah, good, good weather. Yeah, I, I for some reason, I get on my emails. Channel 13 out of Indianapolis, Indiana. And I don't just get the news, but it's the weather girl. And she, every day, pops up. And if I listen to the whole thing, it's like nine, ten minutes long. It's a long thing. And she talks about the weather around Indianapolis and what it's going to do and how it's moving through. But I'll tell you what. Over the last two weeks, three weeks, Indianapolis has gotten pounded with bad weather. It hmm. is just amazing. They had snow, and then they had hail, and then it melted a little bit, and then it froze back up again, and they had high winds, and then they had flooding once the snow started to melt. And it's just, oh, my gosh, don't move to Indianapolis. It just, yep. it was a lot of, a lot of bad weather. So. But I don't know why Amazing. I got that. I mean, the thing's just coming in for some reason, and I just, you know, every time I think mm. about clicking off of it, I watch it and I go, "Oh, that's interesting." So I leave it on. So uh, hang on, let me uh, let me unsubscribe you from that. I think I accidentally uh, put your email address. <laughs> <laughs> you did that. Oh, why would you yeah. want it? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, really. I'm uh, I did a couple of conventions up there back when I was a photographer. I did a couple of conventions mm-hmm. in Indianapolis. Nice little town. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. really, really pleasant. The uh, speedway is way out on the western part of town and then downtown area. Mm-hmm. But the, the speedway in Indianapolis speedway is way out in the western part of town. So, mm-hmm. uh, quite a ways out. Yeah. Welcome to All About Wine. Uh, we are back again for another episode. And, uh, yeah. If you are listening live, it is April the 5th, 2018, 7.03 Eastern Time. 
uh, I guess that's all we need to tell them. You know? well, um, what is is it National Day of uh, something? Oh, or this is the National Caramel Day, or Caramel, or Caramel, National Caramel Day, or Caramel Day. National Raisin and Spice Bar Day is today. Uh, so, you know, tomorrow, National Caramel Popcorn Day. Well, that's odd. They have Caramel Day one day and then National Caramel Popcorn Day the next. <laughs> that's, what's that? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, there you go. My engineer just pointed out that, you know, you'll probably have some caramel left over after Caramel Day, so just mix it up in your popcorn. Good idea. Um, National Fresh Tomato Day is tomorrow also. A little nice BLT and have yourself some uh, Pinot Noir with that. I think that would be good. Tomorrow's also New Beer's Eve. Guess that. Because Saturday is National Beer Day. So tomorrow's Beer's Eve, New Beer's Eve. Um Saturday being beer day. I can't think of any wine to have with beer, but there's lots of beers out there to enjoy, so do so. Although, Saturday is National Coffee Cake Day. Well, an old crumbly coffee cake is always nice. Uh, Saturday Sunday, National... Oh, geez, I'm going to say this. Empan- empanada? Empanada. Okay. That's what, a, a pastry, I think? Uh, and Milwaukee on Sunday celebrates Cheesetopia Day. So if you're in Milwaukee on Sunday, it's Cheesetopia Day. Monday, National Chinese Almond Cookie Day. Tuesday, National Cinnamon Crescent Day. Wednesday, National Cheese Fondue Day. Next Wednesday, Cheese Fondue. There's all sorts of wines you can have with that. And then next Thursday, let you know in advance, National Egg Salad Week starts, and it's National Egg Salad Day. National Licorice Day is also on the 12th week of the day. And it's also National Grilled Cheese Sandwich Day. So next Thursday is a busy day. So start out with an egg salad for breakfast and have some wine with that and have licorice something and evening end up with a grilled cheese sandwich day. No. Sounds good. That, that, yeah, that's, that's what we got coming up this next week here. Uh, on foods to pair up with whatever wines that you find that is best with it. Uh, I mentioned, I don't know, about a month ago. I think it's been that long. The Wine Spectator Grand Tour coming up. Give you another reminder here. The Wine Spectator Grand Tour, if you want to check out the site or register through the site, it's grandtour.winespectator.com. Three cities, three big wine tasting events. Washington, D.C. is coming up on April the 20th. New York City, April 29th, and then out to Las Vegas on May the 5th. Uh, Three great locations, three great wines, but they have all sorts of... There is over 240 wines from around the world, United States, um, California, Washington, Oregon, New York, Virginia, Argentina, Australia, Austria, Chile, Greece, France, Hungary, Israel, Italy, 
New Zealand, Portugal, Spain, and South Africa, and then you got a wine from Uruguay. So all sorts of stuff from all over. All these wines, by the way, are rated 90 or higher by Wine Spectator magazine. So you're getting some decent wines there. Uh, don't have the cost. I think it's like $240 for the event. But you get to keep your uh, souvenir uh, Rito glass, and you also uh, get to taste all the wines. And they also have food. So if you're in any of those places and you've got the money to spare, it's a great way to taste a bunch of wines that you would never, ever buy on your own. And just get a bottle of it. And for $240, some of these wines you're tasting, after you taste two or three of them, you've hit that $240 mark. So it's well worth it. It's, it's a fun event. It's a fun thing to do. The great big sponsored tastings like this are always, always uh, great. Great amount of fun. Okay, let's see. We were talking last week about phylloxera. And we had... Uh, We had a whole bunch of information about phylloxera. We talked about how phylloxera started. We talked about how it spread. We talked about how phylloxera affected different countries. We talked about how different countries played around with it and didn't know what it was. We talked also about how the United States started from step one when the phylloxera started to hit them again instead of looking at other countries and saying, oh, is that what you did already? Maybe we shouldn't do that again. But all this is happening around the world. It was during the change of the intelligence, if you want to, uh, on phylloxera and that time in history when we got science started to become recognizable as a legitimate thing to look at. And so phylloxera popped up about then, and they started to use scientific approaches to it. But it spread all over. There was laws uh, that were passed. uh, Laws sanctioning grafting onto American rootstock was passed in France, and there was some areas that didn't do it for a few years. New grapevines were planted. A lot of the old grapevines in areas that were there for ever, I guess, were switched over and they were switched over to new grapevines because of phylloxera and it was planting they were planting it on American rootstock and because they were planting on American rootstock, it was a good chance to switch over plant in more of the grapes that you find that are hardy and that are good and that you want. So grapes like Carmenere and Melbach lost a lot of real estate and grapes like Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon gained a lot. And that happened not only in France in different areas, but also around the world and a lot in California during the first phylloxera outbreak. The second phylloxera outbreak in California brought even more of the Cabernet Sauvignon grapes and all that throughout. Now there's a lot of Cabernet Sauvignon planted in Napa Valley because of that. But different countries around the world had their ways to handle it. We had uh, Spain that uh, went through the phylloxera outbreak. They uh, 
handled it because of France was right next door, and so they said, hey, you know, do this, and so they did. Germany and Switzerland handled it with a, a strong iron hand. And once an infection was discovered, the vineyards and surrounding vines and land were treated with enough uh, uh, CS2 to kill the roots. And then they had a strict period of quarantine and just wiped it out completely. Soaked the roots in, uh, in uh, petroleum, had bonfires to kill all the stuff and everything. That's how they handled it there. Greece also went through a period of finding phylloxera, and they got rid of it. North Africa, the Algeria area of North Africa was a big wine-producing area. And then when, because of phylloxera hitting France, then after they started to control it in France, Algeria lost a lot of their sales that they were selling to France because of phylloxera, and they hit them. Australia and South America have not been really hit with phylloxera like I read last week. They uh, are really cautious about it. Australia is divided into three zones, phylloxera exclusion zone, the phylloxera risk zones, and phylloxera infected zones. And there's a five-kilometer vine-free buffer surrounding each zone with the infection level. So... It keeps whatever problem it is within those areas, and if they have to treat it, they have to do anything, they can pretty well control it. North America. Phylloxera actually started in the Mississippi River Basin, um, Missouri, down along that area there. And it has actually been controlled. There are still areas of phylloxera that are around there. But overall, phylloxera has been controlled and has been taken care of. I stopped last week, just shy of finishing reading this to you, because I was going to go down into breaking it down. What is phylloxera? Uh, why is it there? What does it do? What What is the purpose of it? Uh where am I here? Uh, well, a, certainly a level of institutional neglect is responsible for California's double serving of phylloxera. Part of the blame rests with some long misunderstood elements of phylloxera's life cycle, as well as its complex relationship to rootstocks. And now they're using American rootstocks. So, but let me. Uh, Continue on tonight with uh, more stuff about this phylloxera and a little bit more of the stuff that is involved with it, what it is. Fundamental to the enduring mysteries of phylloxera is the fact that it is a microscopic insect that spends much of its life underground. This makes it incredibly difficult to observe. According to UC Davis, Dr. Walker, much of the known biology of phylloxera for the last 150 years was at least part conjecture exported from the life cycles of similar aphids, not the phylloxera aphid itself. 
Most accounts describe phylloxera's life cycle in five phases, including both winged and subterranean forms, and both sexual and asexual modes of reproduction. Underneath the ground, an entirely female wingless population of phylloxera feeds on roots, reproducing asexually to turn out massive numbers of clonal offspring. Late in the growing season, a number of phylloxera, again female, are born with wings and migrate above ground, possibly due to population pressures. Though these insects have wings, they possess no muscle to power them, so they use them more like sails and fan out on the breeze, landing on the leaves of some nearby vine. These phylloxera lay eggs in the leaves, which hatch into both male and female forms. Interestingly, these offspring possess neither wings nor digestive organs. They were conceived only to mate. Following intercourse, the male dies while the female lays a single egg in the bark of the vine, which winters over near a dormant bud. Meanwhile, the existing population of phylloxera is killed off by the winter cold. The egg hatches in the spring, producing a single wingless female who returns to the leaves to reproduce asexually. Sometime during the summer, a portion of her offspring returns underground to feed on the roots, starting the cycle all over again. Critically, as each female can lay up to 200 eggs at a time, only one insect is sufficient to spark a massive infestation. While much of the above have been proven true, a few of the details are dubious. Dr. Walker claims that the so-called winter eggs, which have rarely been observed in the wild, and what's more likely is that a small but hardy portion of the phylloxera population is able to hibernate through the winter. Males are also rarely seen and are therefore unlikely to be a reliable annual occurrence. What's more likely possess Dr. Walker is that phylloxera acts in a similar way to, to nematodes, reproducing asexually until some environmental stress triggers the formation of a male. The purpose of this would be to induce genetic variants via sexual reproduction in the hopes of overcoming some difficulty, such as an incompatible food source. When AXR number I, and that is the rootstock I mentioned last week, AXR number I, failed in California. Scientists claimed that the fault resided in the development of a new strain of phylloxera, biotype B. This theory was championed by several faculty members at UC Davis and then graduate student Stephen Krebs, uh, Dr. Stephen Krebs. Dr. Walker eventually joined UC Davis and began working on the phylloxera problem with a focus on their genetic diversity within California. Quote, it became clear to me almost immediately that there wasn't so much a biotype A and B, but many biotypes, or more correctly, strains of phylloxera, he said. Each of these strains came with their own milk preferences, which made resistance fluid in concept. No rootstock is fully resistant to phylloxera, Dr. Walker explains. 
Phloxera does feed on the roots of American varieties, but only on the tiny feeder roots, which replenish so rapidly the vines can survive. The fatal vulnerability of vinifera is that phylloxera can feed on its larger roots, causing swollen lumpy calluses called tuberosities. Tuberosities, yeah. These often split, allowing various bacteria and fungi to infect the plant, ultimately killing it. It is not phylloxera itself that kills the vine, Dr. Walker continues. Phylloxera is merely the nearly the agent provocateur that allows for the introduction of deadly pathogens. And I thought that was extremely interesting because if you remember last week, that was the first thing that France thought. It wasn't the little bug that was causing the problems that they discovered, but it was a pathogen that they couldn't point out. And that really what Dr. Walker is saying here. Curiously, vinifera leaves are relatively immune to damage from phylloxera, while Native American leaves can become covered in galls, though this not, will not kill the vine. There is an inverse immunity relationship between resistance at the root and leaf level among vine types, Dr. Walker adds. So how did AXR Number I survives so long before failing, and is biotype be real or government's conspiracy? The thing is, Dr. Walker says, after the first infection, it really takes 10 to 20 years for a vine to die from a phylloxera attack as the decline is slow. And as an aside here, I had vines that we put on the fence around the winery when we opened it. It was Merlot, Chardonnay, Riesling, and Cabernet Sauvignon vines we put around the fence. And it took only about four years for those things to completely die. Well, someone's calling in. No, it is not. Wow. Is it? Oh. It's there. You got it? Well. Yeah, I know who it is. Okay, let me turn that down. Do that. All right. Sorry about that. Walgreens calling in saying the prescription did. So, so as I was saying, it's like three, four years, the grapevines I had out there died, and it was from phylloxera. Now, I, I don't know, they're saying 10, 20 years here. Those things died really pretty fast. And here in Florida, uh, I, people say that they do die fast. The earliest measurable symptom is the decline in potassium in the must. In that light, it is possible for a vine to survive in soils infected by phylloxera for a considerable amount of time. As another aside here, there's a winery not too far from Florida State Winery that is called um, <laughs> Strong Tower Winery. Strong Tower has planted a bunch of Norton grapes of Santiana, uh, if you are so inclined. And they were told when they planted those that those would be infected by phylloxera and die. They are infected by phylloxera. They are not dying. He says he's had them tested quite a few times, and there is phylloxera that comes up every time he has them tested, 
but so far he has not had a problem with them dying or anything. They've been in the ground now for uh, it has to be 12 years. So, so I don't know. That's maybe Florida again works differently. Um, So with Flocker, there are no absolutes. Much of the pest behavior depends on its environment. Just as it cannot thrive in too sandy soil, Flocker's dormant season is greatly extended in cold climates, and the resulting truncated growing season means fewer reproductive cycles for Flocker and therefore fewer bugs. Similarly, climates with very dry summers, like in California, will suppress the wing form, which also slows the advance. Whether or not you view Dr. Walker's warnings as realistic, history is replete with teachable moments, and it is one of those things with phylloxera, at the very least, it's worthwhile to keep the conversation going. Phylloxera irrevocably changed the world of wine, but did it alter wine itself? The answer to this question lies in whether you believe that grafted vines produce different tasting fruit than own rooted vines. I can confirm to you that when you use American roots, you change the taste of the vine. Loic Pasque asserts, Pasque is a bit of a renegade in Bordeaux. His brand, Lieber Pater, works with own rooted vines high-density plantings, and historic varieties. For example, he has Castet, Marnay-Coulant, and Saint-Macaire. In order to create the type of wine produced by the, at the time of the, ni- or the 1855 classification. With grafted vines, he says, one cannot make a vin de terre, only a varietal wine. For example, Cabernet Sauvignon was grafted for gravelly soil with oceanic weather. If you use ungrafted Cabernet Sauvignon, it can only do well in those conditions. If you graft, you can plant anywhere, but you lose the specificity of terror. You lose the true taste of the wine, end quote. That's what he says. But then, you know, another aside here, and i got to do this, when you graft stuff on there, it should not affect the top of the You're just using the root system. You're using a blood system. I always explain this. If you were to replace your vascular system, your blood system, your veins and all that with mine and all the capillaries and everything and all of the small ones and everything, you replace the entire vascular system in you with mine. That doesn't make you me. That still, you are still you. And that's the same thing with the root system. Root system is just a feeding system for the plants. And so when you graft, you're really not changing what you're grafting onto it. It's just a feed system. But according to, uh, what's his name here? Loic Pasquet, it does make a difference. Alan Meadows has been more, has more experience tasting pre-phylloxera burgundies than most. Quote, I would argue that there is a difference in wines made from grafted and ungrafted vines, meadows and mids, but it's less about taste than texture. There is a different density and weight, and it's almost as if the tannins themselves have a different quality. 
end quote. The difficulty, he says, is in knowing whether that variance is from grafting or is a result of the differences in vine age, density, and training. Still, he's inclined to finger the graft. Quote, if you really believe that a vine has a life below ground and a life above ground, and the one below feeds and nourishes the vines, it seems to me that making such a fundamental change to the structure of the vine would result in a measurable difference in the taste of the wine. You can graft apple tree stalk trunk onto an orange tree root system and it's not going to make the apples taste like oranges. But, okay, let me go on. I, again, I'm at a trial. Christoph Baron of Walla Walla's Cayuse is one of the few people who regularly able to compare wines from own-rooted and grafted examples of the same variety with roughly the same age or same vine age planted on identical soils. He agrees with metals that the difference is primarily textural. Quote, when you read old articles or texts about pre-floxure wines, they always talk about that smooth, velvety quality in the mouthfeel and on the palate. And that is really what it is. My grafted vines are completely different. The wines have more tension, more grip. And this is true across the range of red riders. End quote. On the umbrella of the Trilly label, Tegan Palasqua, whose social media handle is at OwnRooted, indicates his level of interest in the matter. Works with several old vine vineyards, both grafted and ungrafted. He also believes that grafting can change the taste of a wine but takes it one step further by proposing that different rootstocks will do this in different ways. Quote, the main thing I can speak to is Zimindel. And the biggest thing with Zimindel is that its own rooted vines tend to ripen more evenly inside the cluster. End quote. Why would that be? I don't know. This, he believes, is because the St. George rootstock, upon which most old vine Zimindel is planted, is notorious for uneven fruit set. He also thinks that Winty Clone Chardonnay, so highly regarded for producing shot berries, small seedless grapes with high skin to juice ratio, owes at least part of its reputation to its long association with St. George. People tend to focus on the clones when discussing wines, but the rootstock can either magnify or reduce a given cone's tendencies dramatically. Indeed, aside from disease resistance, some of the factors the rootstock can influence include vigor, evenness of ripening, timing of ripening, and uh, nutritional uptake. The results may be subtle, but variances in any of these categories is bound to alter the final impression of the wine. Not everyone is convinced that grafting alters the taste of wine in a significant way, or at least to a more profound degree excuse me, than that seen between different clones and rootstocks. Napa Valley viticulturist and winemaker Steve Mathiason says, quote, 
I think it is a myth that own-rooted vines are in a different category than rootstocks. Yes, they are a different root system, but all rootstocks are different from any other rootstock. Own-rooted vines are grown from cuttings just like rootstocks. So it is already an unnatural root architecture compared to a plant that grew from a seed that started with a tap root. This question of rootstock versus own rooted was debated in France for over 75 years back in the 1800s. And the conclusion was that rootstocks show terror just as well. Rootstocks can help with sustainable agriculture by being more drought or pest tolerant besides the obvious flock for tolerance. So I hate them getting a bad rap. It's like dry farming versus deficient irrigation or organic versus biodynamic. There needs to be a place for being reasonable and focusing on important stuff like pesticide use, habitat, soil conservation, labor issues, and so on. End quote. Tyler Thomas, winemaker for Dyerberg and Star Lane Vineyards in Santa Barbara, cautions against overly romanticizing the subject. Quote, the discussion of own-rooted versus grafted vines remind me of the old vines versus young vines debate in which the default romantic position is that old vines make better wine. In my career, sometimes I have been able to taste the difference between old and young vines with the same vineyard, and sometimes I can't. As with own rooted vines, I believe it is a case-by-case issue. And one of the reasons that old vines are kept is because they historically performed well. Underperforming vines would likely have to be ripped out before achieving great age. So there is a kind of pre-selection. As wine lovers, we sometimes forget to apply that kind of logic. End quote. No matter where you stand on the quantitative Qualitative debate, it's hard not to feel curious about these relics from our own vineyards past. Fortunately for wine lovers, there exist enough pockets of the world where Flostra has not penetrated. Canary Islands, Chile, Contra Costa County. Now that's just east of San Francisco. And I tried to find out more on that. And I couldn't, but Contra Costa County, that's because that's Winty and that's Concanon uh, uh, are two of the wineries that's been there forever. There's lots of them now, but those two have come off top. And that Contra Costa County always surprises me. And Chloris, and these are just the seeds that we can still experience the taste of wines planted on their own roots. Such portals to the past are slowly closing, however. As recently as 2005, one of Bollinger's ancient vineyards succumbed to phylloxera. And even where sandy soils forbid the louse, threats such as real estate development and the financial pressures to plant higher producing or more popular varieties loom. Higher producing or more popular varieties loom. Pre-phylloxera bottles with classic regions are becoming increasingly difficult to find, and recent fraudulent activity has hobbled confidence in those uh, in those that remain. Uh, the author of this says, I have been lucky enough in my time as a sommelier to try pre-flotter bottlings of Bordeaux and Burgundy on a handful of occasions. And the few tablespoons I enjoyed were magical enough to make me immediately nostalgic for a period of time 
with which I have no real connection. Still, it was the romance of their rarity that transported me, rather than a discernible difference in taste, per se. And yet, when I think of those wines today, I daydream of a world in which even a faint attempt at quarantine in the 19th century might have preserved some of the ancient ways. Considering the monumental impact of Philoxera, the world would be a very different place. Who knows? Maybe no serious wine list would be complete without a varietal of Gouguet Noir from central France. And maybe it would be considered classic instead of fringe. We can't say for sure. All we can do is to connect to that diminishing heritage is to seek out those rare bottles in the few remaining Philoxera-free regions. We can raise our glasses, contemplate the wine's texture on our tongues, and toast the forces beneath our feet that we can't see for squinting, but can make the whole world jump. And that's in a flash. An interesting, a little note at the bottom. For the purposes of this article, the term hybrid only refers to crosses between European and American varieties. There are many popular hybrids created by crossing these two types. And almost all rootstocks are hybrids of different American vine types. Typically, some combination of Vitus uh, repertus, Vitus riparia, and Vitus berlandiria. So, uh, there you go. Written by uh, Kelly White, who is a uh, uh, sommelier. Uh, she writes a lot of articles for the uh, this website that I found this on. This is 750 Daily. Uh, so check that out, uh, 750 Daily. But there you go, Flocktra, everything everyone knows, last couple of weeks on it. Does it make a difference? I don't know. I I can't say. I've never had, as far as I know, a wine that was not planted on a rootstock. Well, no, I can't say that now. That's that's not true. That that is not true because Chile, Chile, doesn't plant their vines on American rootstock. They are own vine, are own rooted, and. So I've had some. We carried some Chilean wine for a while at the winery. And I've had quite a few other Chilean wines. So I guess I have. And that's interesting because I really fell in love with the Carmenere from Chile. And I've never had any other Carmenere except for Chilean Carmenere. Although I've heard that it is available in some wineries in the United States. But I've only had that one from Chile, and I love the pepperiness, the smoothness, and all that. And maybe, I don't know, because of own root, it is more of a smooth wine and a little pepperiness and all. So that's an interesting. I was going to say I've never had it, but I have. Uh, if you have chill, if you've ever had wine from Chile, then you have had. Wines with American or with uh, without American rootstock with own vines. So there you go. That's uh, everything you want to know about Flocksure over the last two weeks, and just didn't ask. New website, actually a redesign of online shopping for wine called Wine Express. I received an email for this. 
they tout themselves as a brand new online shopping experience. They say it's faster and easier than ever before. You can check out what you want to get uh, some improvements. It's um, more mobile, more videos and tasting notes, uh, easier to search, a more powerful search. They said it reflects over 30 plus year heritage of uh, designs and what they're showing you and everything. So it is the wineexpress.com. And it's uh, Josh Farrell, I guess, is the, the person behind this. And, uh, but it's, if you're looking for getting wines or all sorts of different wines of different places or everything, then check it out. Wineexpress.com. That's just like this on W-I-N-E-E-X-P-R-E-S-S dot com. Um, I've checked out this. It's a good site. There's a lot of stuff on there. I tend to think some of the prices are a little bit high, but check it out for yourself and see what you think. Uh, New Zealand. I saw an article and I, I wiped it out because I had some malware that popped in with it and so I got rid of it. But New Zealand is now producing a lot of Pinot Noir. It is the second most planted grape in New Zealand behind the Sauvignon Blanc. New Zealand has always been noted for the Sauvignon Blanc and the great Sauvignon Blanc. Every time I think of Sauvignon Blanc, New Zealand comes to mind. There's some phenomenal Sauvignon Blancs coming out of New Zealand. Uh, the grassy, uh, earthy Sauvignon Blancs that are just, you know, with lots of, uh, oh, why grassy is only, I mean, it's the best word to describe it. They're just they're wonderful Sauvignon Blancs. Well, now New Zealand is starting to show that they can do more than just Sauvignon Blancs. They are coming out with uh, some very good Pinot Noirs. It was tough to grow for a while, but they have spent more time on it. It is yet another clone. I don't know what, what clone it is, but it is yet another clone. But they're getting to grow extremely well in New Zealand now. Barefoot brand remains on top. Wine sales this last year rose by 3% overall, which is substantial if you start looking at it. Uh, rose by 3% overall with Barefoot Still number one. Barefoot is probably going to be number one forever and ever um, because they have such a wide variety and because they also are reasonably priced. And that's really one of the big things about the price. And so, and the wines aren't bad. Uh, we, again, remind you we did a program where we interviewed and talked with. The founders of Barefoot Wine. It's available in archives if you're interested. British Columbia. I mentioned a couple of three weeks ago, four weeks ago, about the battle between British Columbia and uh, their neighbor, Alberta, uh, British Columbia uh, province and Alberta province. Alberta wanted to run a pipeline 
true British Columbia. And British Columbia says, no, you can't. And so then, because of that, Alberta says, okay, then we aren't going to import any more of your wines. And British Columbia sells a lot of their wines to Alberta. And so they started this battle. April by British Columbia is uh, declared to be British Columbia Wine Month. The British Columbia is home to 929 vineyards. That's 3,900 hectares, including over 350 wineries. Uh, It's uh, home to over 600 different, I'm sorry, 60 different grape varieties. Many BC wines will soon be showcased at all government-run liquor stores. April has been proclaimed as BC Wine Month to try to stop the losses linked to Alberta's boycott. It's a first step, and they're meaning to use it as a way to get around the boycott, said Miles Hayden, who is president and CEO of the BC Wine Institute. He's pleased how the government has backed him up on this and responded. The uh, 60 different grape varieties grow in British Columbia, including Merlot, Pinot Gris, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Cabernet Sauvignon, Gouverneur Demeanor, Cabernet Franc, Syrah, Riesling, Sauvignon Blanc. We can go on and on. If there's 60, it's probably most of them that we're used to. Um, it's just that uh, they're getting into the BC liquor stores and around. The boycott will take its toll on the wine industry. The top market for BC. Uh, Wine is, according to the 2016 study, was China at 54%, Taiwan at 23%, and the United States at 11%, and the rest all to, basically all over to Alberta. Uh, it is a multi-million dollar business. BC saw $9.7 million in wine products shipped in 2016, and they employ over 12,000 workers. So it's estimated about a $3 billion business a year to the BC economy, and the boycott by Alberta is affecting that. Now, I saw something that, let's see, let me get out of this. Let me see if I. I saw something, and I, I lost it. I, I saw something somewhere, and I can't remember what it was. I saw it, but I saw something that it was talking about this being settled. For They somehow settled the argument, somehow settled this boycott. I don't know if they allowed the line to go through, if they allowed the line to go through and they stopped it or whatever. I don't know. I, I know I saw something. And I've been trying to find it ever since I saw that headline, and I can't. I don't know what happened to it. And it's been driving me wacko ever since that because, but I will find it. I will let you know. I think the battle between British Columbia and uh, Alberta has been resolved, if you will, but I'm not sure. I'll, I'll have to look it up and see. Tannet wine, T-A-N-N-A-T, 
uh, Tanit, originally from the Madurin area in southwest France, tiny village in southwest France, is uh, becoming big and big. The article here says it might be the next Malbec. It says it has the gusto of a Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, wines are very affordable. They're making them in Uruguay uh, now. A lot of tannins being grown in Uruguay, and because of that, the prices are really, really reasonable. Uh, it's uh, first appeared in Wine Spectator's Top 100 in 2017, listed as number 41 with a uh, tenant, reserve tenant from Uruguay. It was selling for $17. Uh, most tenant wines are priced between 15 and 30. It has uh, been touted as the healthiest red wine grade um, because of much higher levels of antioxidants like resveratrol. And newer tenant vine clones are improving the wine. They maintain the prior structure and the complexity uh, that they've always had in it. The taste flavors you're going to find. Black plum, black licorice, dark chocolate, cardamom, smoke. Ooh, after the fires in California, I don't know if that's good or not. Uh, and uh, brown spices. The more oak aging, the more spice-driven character the wine will carry. Uh, the more maceration of the time it spends with the skin, the more color pigments and the tannins will come out even more in the final product. The styles of uh, French tannin is ten, tends to be to a red fruit flavors like raspberry in, uh, with more tannin and more power. Whereas Uruguay, the tannins come across as more pliable and softer with a fruit, uh, fruit boy. Lips are getting my tongue. The fruit profile are mostly black fruits like blackberry, black cherry, and plum, uh, which uh, this says here with some enduring elegance. The um, food pairing, they said tannins uh, in the, will go well with some uh, beef, sausage, uh, roasted lamb, duck, uh, some aged cheese. The excuse me, polyphenol content in different wines, Merlot, approximately 1,000 milligrams, Cabernet, around 1,250, Tannet jumps up to about 4,000 milligrams uh, of polyphenol content. And uh, it's easy to grow in a variety of climates, especially dry climates. Uh, less likely to be attacked by vineyard pest, fungus, mold, less susceptible to cold temperature variations and frost. It's just it's becoming uh, a, a wine to look at, drink, take notice. Oak barrel aging uh, introduces the wood to it, uh, but it doesn't always need it. So uh, look for it, tan it. T-A-N-N-A-T, Tannet Wines, uh, from Uruguay or from France. And the ones from Uruguay are going to be cheaper. So 
check that out. I'm going to have to go out and get one of those. I haven't. I just saw this article and I haven't had a chance to go follow up on a tenant. Uh, 750 Daily. Uh, if you don't subscribe to it, it's, it's interesting. They, they list the stuff, different things. Um, shows five or six different things that you can read the articles on. It doesn't, it's a quick scan and uh, like those latest ones today, batching and bottling cocktails, uh, the science of whole cluster fermentation, how Andre Mark used the digital media to market his wines, championing organic wines in Chicago, William, Wilson Daniels Wholesale Charts, a course for growth. These are different things. Some of them are interesting. Some of them you go, eh, pick out of it, go to the next one. But uh, that article I just covered the last two weeks on Phylloxera was from the 750 Daily. So if you're interested, check that out. And I think I might be done for the night. I pulled up some stuff wow. here and I... I think I've been, I think 750, I think I've added them to our online, uh, I think, yeah, 750 Daily, there it is, yeah, 750 Daily. Uh, Yeah, some of their articles I've been uh, reposting, Uh, we get them automatically in here on that thing I was telling you about last time for social media, and uh, so I just click on a couple of them, and there you go. (laughs) They've been showing up on our there's some really interesting yeah. stuff like that. They got some good writers. They got some people who know what they're doing. I mean, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not um, yeah. some hacks, if you will. Um, it's yeah. people who have credentials and know what they're doing. So, yeah, yeah. Um, it's good. I'm glad, Very glad good. you put that. Very good. They have a lot of lot of information on there. <laughs> a lot of little, little articles come up. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, they're pretty <clears throat> easy reading articles. Uh, uh, yesterday... What was it? Yeah, on last Friday, the thirtieth, they had an article making varietal wines in Bordeaux, which is really interesting. Um, and yeah, just all sorts of stuff in there. Uh, they, and one has a master song, honky tonk hits in the scene in Houston. You know, I mean, these things <laughs> you, you find interesting in others. You know, yep. so yeah, it's it's a good site. I I enjoy it. And while you're yeah. looking at websites, too, and I don't know if we have links to it or not on, on the new, but um, Las Vegas Wino. Um, oh, yeah. Our, our friend there in uh, Irene. Las, yeah. Uh, yeah, Irene King. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Las Vegas Wino. That's always some good read there. Also, we have uh, the... Uh, <laughs> Boy, my mind. I retired my joy. mind stuff. Yeah, Joy <laughs> still up with Thank you. Yep, Joy, joy, joy of Wine. Joy of Wine, yeah. Uh, yep. That is a really a uh, lot of interesting stuff. And, I, you know, I've, I've also shared, she, she does something else, too, besides just the wine thing. She does a grave interest, which is mm-hmm. about cemeteries and and a uh, bunch of stuff about that, gravestones, what they mean, and different things. That is interesting too. You, you know, it's not anything to do with wine, but she writes both of those blogs, and they are both very interesting. So, yeah. check those out. 
Absolutely. Um, all right. I guess if you are uh, ready to close the show out for this week, we will be back next Thursday, April the 12th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Daylight Savings Time. <laughs> Whatever it is. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah. The show started in the sun. Eastern yeah. Daylight Savings I don't know what the word is if Florida's going to go full time on daylight same time or not. I guess it's up to the Congress. Yeah. I mean, actually, National Congress now to wow. vote on. It was, yeah. a, it was just the state that was deciding this. No, no. no. You, once the state passes it, they present it to the National Congress. And they have to oh. approve. So. Yeah. They have to get to work first and then. That's right. <laughs> we will <laughs> we'll be back yeah. uh, next next Thursday, 7 p.m., whatever time it is, Eastern Time. And uh, we'll see you all then. Uh, thanks for tuning in and for your support and everything. And uh, if you'd like to be a guest, I have a couple of tweets uh, scheduled for that. But if you'd like to be a guest, go to the website, allaboutwinebtr.com, and look on the Be a Guest link, and there's information there. Uh, just be available on Thursdays uh, sometime, you know, a few minutes after 7 o'clock, and uh, we'd love to have you. So uh, we'll just talk. Just, uh, no, no gotchas. We'll yeah. just talk. So if you're interested, nope. just get in touch with us, and then we'll talk. Yeah, and we call you. You don't have to make the call yourself. So it's pretty cool. Um, let us know. We'll see you all again. Uh, thanks again, and um, have a great week. And and enjoy your uh, grilled cheeseburger next Thursday or grilled cheeseburger. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've had that before. Thanks for tuning in. Bad. Thanks for listening. All right. Thank you. We'll see you. Thank you. Bye. This concludes tonight's broadcast of All About Wine on Blog Talk Radio with your host, Ron. For show information, links to All About Wine on Twitter and Facebook, or to be a guest on this show, visit the show website at www.allaboutwinebtr.com. Archive shows are available for download on iTunes or on our show page at blogtalkradio.com forward slash allaboutwine. Thank you for listening. Drink responsibly, and we'll see you next time on All About Wine. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.